Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. And today is episode 11, Addiction. So we were curious, uh, what's the reality of someone who has dealt with an addiction of their own? And what about maybe someone who is actively in recovery? And, and maybe dispel some of the rumors that continue to exist about addiction. What's actually going on physiologically that causes someone to suffer from an addiction? You know, I wonder about that a lot. In my family of origin, in my family history, I don't have a ton of experience with addiction, but I've been a pastor for a number of years now, and this is at the forefront of of conversations and family histories. Uh, a lot of shame around that, a lot of questions, and a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And it seems just like one of those really big topics that uh, just... In general, I mean, you know, they're kind of a few big topics that people just don't know how to deal with, and we just don't have a lot of understanding of maybe that process of helping someone through it. And and I, you know, I'd find myself in this in the same situation. I don't have a lot of uh, family members or, or friends who have really directly dealt with this. Uh, you know, maybe some extended family or mm-hmm. or extended family of friends. Um, but the same for me. It's 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 kind of a curiosity of how do we learn a little bit more and and help people because I don't I don't have a good handle on it personally. When I look at uh, the people that I've known over the years, I've, uh, again, I've had the, the honor of being in people's lives, invited into people's lives who are both at struggling with it and people who are in recovery. And it's powerful. It's powerful mm-hmm. to see the change. But to hear their stories, uh, both when they hit bottom and their stories about how sweet life is uh, in recovery. Uh, mm-hmm. Both are true, and it's uh, and it's powerful to hear those stories. And I think that's that's you know I, I think that that the maybe the gift in in that is that is that understanding of of really what is just great about life. A similar experience, you know, the conversations that I've had with with people who are in recovery, mm-hmm. um, especially the ones who I know a little bit more personally and and have seen that turn around in them. Uh, it's just fascinating to see how differently they see the world. And I just kind of wonder what we can maybe learn from that. And so with that, we'd like to introduce Jennifer Gifford. Jennifer is a counselor here at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I just had a great conversation with her and would like to introduce Jennifer. Well, I'd like to introduce Jennifer Gifford uh, to the podcast today. Uh, hi, Jennifer. Hi, nice to see you again today. Yeah, and, and so your position, if you would, I want to make sure that we get it correct. <laughs> I'm a LADC, which is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor in the state of Minnesota. Very good, very yeah. good. We've been doing a podcast on addiction, and, and we have questions about what's happen- happening phys- from a physical standpoint from a mental standpoint, maybe an emotional standpoint uh, with regard to addiction. And that's the the interesting thing with addiction is because there's a lot of explanations out there and a lot of theories about what's happening. Um, What we do know is that it is a biological disease uh, that's happening in the brain. And when the brain is developing uh, and when most people are starting to use drugs is like age 15, 16. And that's when our kind of our prefrontal cortex, like kind of the brain right behind our forehead uh, begins to start to develop which seems like it's just a little late because we're making major decisions already before that point. But people start to use, and that part of the brain can be affected um, and can make it difficult for us to make good, healthy decisions. So that part's first of all in play. That doesn't get quite the development that it needs, and people just you know, can't figure out what's the right move for them. Mm-hmm. 
But then there's a part of the brain which is really the survival brain. That's the part of the brain that's the more ancient part. It's the part that's been there since creation. It's all the animals have this part of the brain. It's what keeps us alive, okay? And the reality is, is what happens is people start using substances and the brain says, ooh, that was better than I expected. Mm -hmm. And our prefrontal cortex sends a message saying, ooh, remember, remember this, this is important. Um, and so we end up kind of in this cycle where it's telling us it's good when in reality it's not doing good things for us. Mm -hmm. um, that part of our brain was designed really to, to keep us alive. We get, um, uh, we get chemical dumps in our brain from relationships, from uh, having friendships, having kids, having companions, uh, having a great meal. And the substances, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, all of them supersede that. And so instead of those things being at the top of our survival list, what really is at the top is the drug or the alcohol. Okay. And so the ability to make a decision to stay sober is not easy um, because you're really working with a part of the brain that we don't control. Mm -hmm. And it's not mm -hmm. something I can think my way out of. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the physical aspects of it. When you look more at the, the emotional aspects, um, addiction comes from a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, people can have horrific childhoods and a lot of abuse and violence, and that's how they've coped with uh, life in general. Um, people can have great childhoods and have no issues whatsoever but get into experimenting. And then the next thing they know, they're in trouble. They're using yeah. more than they thought they should. They're having problems with it, and then they can't stop. Um, so really, mental health-wise, we see a lot of emotional problems. Okay. Um, a large percentage, I want to say somewhere around 75% of people who come in have a mental health diagnosis too. And, and so, so in a sense, they're self-medicating. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And most, most people will explain it that way too. Sure. You know, my anxiety was so bad I had to have a drink. Or, sure. you know, it's marijuana calms me down. It helps mm -hmm. me relax at the end of the day. And so then we kind of start looking at that with them and saying, what other coping techniques are out there? Right. And, and most of us rely on what we learned as kids. And we continue to use those into adulthood, and they kind of work for us. Sure. Um, and this is one that doesn't. In what degree does, uh, you know, I've always heard about biology with this, <laughs> and it's uh, from a hereditary standpoint. Uh, say more about that. The genetics behind this is, is amazing because um, at one time when I was doing my internship, I was treating a grandparent, his son, and his grandson at the same time. Wow. And that's not uncommon. Yeah. Um, there is heredity here. There is genetics here. Um, and, and what we know is that it increases your risk, at least doubles your risk of developing the disease. So when everybody else who doesn't have this family history is out there experimenting, it's not such a big deal. But somebody who's got this family history, it doesn't take them as long to cross over into addiction. So they, that biology becomes impaired sooner for them. Just it compounds on itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hmm. No, you know, and it's not just, you know, a lot of people think it's just, well, I got to figure it out. I can think myself out of it. I can talk myself out of it. Um, I can do this on my own. Uh, the vast majority of people that try to stop aren't able to stop for at least a year even. Um, and most patients, it's kind of fun. They come in and they say, well, I stopped for six months, and they're very proud of that. And I'm like, good, you did that. <laughs> but that also kind of tells me there's a problem because mm -hmm. why did you go back to it? Mm -hmm. If it was causing problems, why did you go back to it? And most of them get to a spot where it affects their social life. They can't have fun without being intoxicated or high. 
Um, and so that's another part of what we do with patients is we want them to learn how to have fun sure. and just celebrate what's life and what's good um, and get a high from that and instead of the substances. Sure. So this is really a, a disease that's, you know, there's a biology component to it, there's a psychology component to it, there's a social component to it, and there's a spiritual component to it. Mm. Um, people in long-term recovery often talk about this as a spiritual disease. In reality, yeah, it's right. understanding where do I fit in the world and who can I lean on. Right. You right. know, is that a higher power, is that God? Um, what is out there that helps me get through my days mm. and makes life worth living? And living sober. And how do you get into that stream, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. How do you connect yeah. with that people with the people that are going to help you get there? Yeah, you yeah. know. And so it's really helping people reconnect um, because if they try to do it by themselves, most won't succeed. It's when you get a chance to be able to get out and meet other people. That's why groups like AA and NA are so strong mm-hmm. and so powerful. Is other people are saying, "Yeah, I've done that too." So. It's it's getting plugged in with community in whatever that community form that community takes because the community has been replaced by the drug. Yes, absolutely. So it's taking the drug out and replacing it with authentic community. Yep, absolutely. And that reconnection to one another. And there's yeah. a spiritual aspect of that when we connect with one another and when we can be there for one another. You know, walking this life alone is not easy. Mm-hmm. So when you've got people you can lean on and count on, uh, makes every day a little more fun. The the other the only other uh, question that's been uh, rolling around in my brain is I've uh, lots of them, um, but the one question I wanted to ask was what you know what about other addictions right I mean you've talked about alcohol and drug and I know that there's uh, there's gambling mm-hmm. and there's porn and there's just the list goes on and on absolutely so what about those other addictions. Uh, what, what could you say about that? There's more research happening there. Um, gambling finally made it into the um, to the addiction component of our diagnostic and statistical manual uh, this go around. Um, and so there's still a lot of unknowns out there. And it's partly of understanding what the chemistry is of that addiction and what is behavioral because they addiction has both. Mm-hmm. And so what we know is that's happening in these other addictions. What's happening with it, whether it's a sex addiction or a gambling addiction or internet or whatever, is that that is replacing life. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. replacing the person's ability to connect. Most people will uh, have some sort of experience with cross addiction. So they may start out with chemical addiction, and the next thing they know, they're ended up gambling. Mm-hmm. Or they might start out with a heroin addiction, and next thing they know, they can't get out of work on a decent time because they're there 24 hours a day. Mm. So it's another form of the addiction, and we're learning how to treat that still. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are programs out there that do treatment for that, but it's few and far between. Okay. And so we're really mm. working at how do we understand those, and how do we most effectively treat them. Right, right. just want to say thank you so much for... For being with us today Absolutely. and um, you know it, it gives us such insight into what's happening from a we want to approach it from a holistic standpoint and uh, and your your insight is just huge for us and that's so important for families to know is that there's a lot of shame with this disease mm. we talk about what's the difference between shame and guilt and for most patients they don't have a difference guilt's when I make a mistake sorry shame is when I am a mistake Mm. And so mm. when we look at addiction, that's what patients start thinking. And they're unable. <coughs> Sorry. I've been talking all day. <laughs> and they become unable to really trust themselves and what's happening in their lives. And so we find that what's most important is to encourage and support, not shame. 
Okay. Um, especially when people relapse because that's when shame becomes uncontrollable. Yeah. yeah. And so really what we want to do is encourage people that, hey, you're coming forward, you're talking this stuff, we can help. Right, right. Um, and family members can help. But this disease doesn't go away. It's a lifelong disease. It's a long process. Yeah. Um, and so that support for family members is critical as well. So if there's somebody out, you know, we have listeners from all over the place, mm-hmm. where, and they're feeling like they have a problem or they know somebody who has a problem, uh, what do they do next? If it's yourself, talk with your doctor. You know, really, the doctors have a great insight into this. They, When people talk about it, um, they're not really always good at catching it all the time because mm-hmm. it, it hides, and it hides because of, of the shame. Talk with your doctor about it. Talk with your pastor about it. Talk with um, any social worker or mental health provider in the community, um, and they can get you connected with a local treatment provider who can do an assessment and get you to the right level of care. And then get connected, um, whether it's an AA group or a Celebrate Recovery group or uh, Narcotics Anonymous, whatever it is, but get connected with other people who are in recovery. And, and they can just community. and they can just Google it, find a local uh, provider, local community, and 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 enter that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, you can also go with county social services. Um, okay. The community services, they the social workers they work with is a lot. You know, in Minnesota, there's even funds available to cover the cost of treatment, and so people shouldn't be afraid to come forward and say, mm-hmm. "Hey, I need some help." Um, and what are people the people I work with find is that they're amazed at how many people are out there saying. I'm so proud you came forward. I'm mm-hmm. so proud you're working on this. How can I help? Mm-hmm. And it's not the, the shame that they expect. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's important to just come forward and say, hey, I need some help. The, even if people feel like they're the only person in the history of the universe who's ever had this problem, there are people who can say, me too. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of the most powerful tools I think that we have is yeah. people say, I've been there. I know yeah. what you're going through. Yeah. Very so. Good. Very good. Thanks, Jen. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Glad yeah. I could so be much. here. Yeah. So I think it's really important for us to know the kinds of things that are physically going on with someone who's dealing with addiction. And I also think it's really important to hear from those who are struggling with it or have struggled with it in the past and let them share their story as well. With that, we'd like to share a story of someone that we know who is actively in recovery. Well, I'd like to introduce Steve Books. I've known Steve now for a bunch of years mm-hmm. and he's uh, a friend of ours and would just, uh, with a friend of ours with a story to tell, and I'd like to introduce Steve. Welcome. Thanks, Dave. Um, I'm here today um, to uh, talk about addiction. Um, you guys have some questions, but just a, a brief background. I'm, uh, I actually just uh, turned over 27 years sober mm, on last Sunday. It was 27 years. And on Sunday, you said. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. And uh, um, my drugs of choice were beer and intravenous cocaine. Um, I was actively addicted. I started drinking at the age of 15. Mm. Um, the first time I quit, I was 28. And okay. the last time I quit, I was 31. Okay. <laughs> so it tried a couple of times. Yeah. And really, I mean, the reason I'm here is simple. Uh, um, uh, this epidemic is huge mm-hmm. right now. And um, anywhere I can go to help someone out of it or help families in need, uh, I- I'm there. That's, uh, that's part of the deal. And, um, yeah, yeah so, so that's why I'm here. So tell me about... Uh, your story is is fascinating to me, and and you talked about the first time you had a beer, you're 15, and you talked about how this anxiety that you always had felt before that, and yeah, absolutely. I th- I think you know in retrospect, and I've worked uh, I've worked in this field 
quite in depth. I've been on uh, the board of directors of the Cronin Home and and done a lot of, uh, you know, uh, I've done a lot of um, work with other alcoholics and and uh, even some therapists. And and I look back at my childhood, and um, if you're wondering when you become an alcoholic, for me it was the day I was born. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, I look back at my childhood, and it was based almost totally in fear. Mm -hmm. And of course, at a young age, that the way I felt was normal. I mean, that was what I thought life was. Mm -hmm. But I look back. I'll, I'll give you just a for instance as is when the Harry Potter books came out, I would take my kids to the midnight to buy the Harry Potter books, the new ones. Yeah. Barnes & Noble would be absolutely full of kids when I took them there. Mm -hmm. Now, I, look, I was in there with my kids buying Harry Potter books in this full place, Barnes & Noble. If I would have gone into that situation when I was a kid, I would have been terrified. Okay. And now I never... Because of the people or... I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. yeah. I never... But I never identified that when I was a child. But mm. but in retrospect, I, yeah. there was a lot... I, I had a very fear-based childhood. Mm -hmm. So at the age of 15, when I had that first beer, and the, the first time I ever drank, I blacked out. So I don't really even remember anything about the night. Oh. But the next morning, I woke up, and I knew that I had found the solution to all my problems. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I say these things, and, and like in my mind, I didn't go through that. But in retrospect, I look back, and I loved alcohol the day after my first drunk, which is ironic because I was blacked out and didn't remember any, any of it right, at all. Right. Uh, but I do remember the feeling of knowing that I just fell in love. For the you first just found time. it. I found it. I found yeah. the thing that was that the solution to all my problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it started. That's where it started. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's pretty acceptable. And, and to this day, alcohol is, is the biggest gateway drug of all. Sure. Uh, I mean, we can we can talk about pot and all that, but uh, alcohol. I think you know, alcohol and pot are the two biggest gateway drugs. But alcohol above pot, and mm -hmm. alcohol, of course, is very acceptable uh, in society. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's at it's everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's going to be there, and um, yeah. So I, I had a drinking career. It it. Drink, the drinking went on, and I was working in a place in Rochester called the Depot House. It was a restaurant, okay. and one of the um, one of the cooks had some uh, White Cross amphetamines. It was kind of the methamphetamine of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. meth wasn't around yet, yeah. so um, I thought, sure, let's try these, and and that was it. Was just speed. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't say just, just speed, speed right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, so I tried speed in there again. Every, everything I used, I enjoyed. Uh, there was very okay. few things that I put in my body that I, I didn't enjoy. Um, so I, I tried speed and, uh, that would just allow me to drink for longer periods of time. Oh, wow. And, okay. and so, uh, and then, uh, it would also allow me to, um, exist with very little sleep. Okay. So, um, so those in, in the, at, in Minnesota, when I turned 18, that was the drinking age. There was okay. a period of a couple of years there where the drinking age, legal drinking age was, was 18. 18. Yeah. So I drank, I drank on and off from 15 to 18 as I could get, uh, mm -hmm. alcohol. And, and I don't, you know, 
there again, uh, the, the life of drinking when I could was very normal. I, 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 I don't know if I excelled or, or was worse at things. I assume that I probably wasn't as good at things as I should have been. Mm-hmm. You know, it affected mm-hmm. my life. But, uh, you know, even up to the time I, I quit drinking, I, I, I didn't get a DUI. I didn't lose a house. I didn't, uh, you know, get in any accidents. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't have anything. I mean, I, I I was still not out of the gate yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at, you didn't have much to lose at th- that point. That's exactly yeah, right. right. I, I stayed on the bottom. Yeah. And um, somewhere uh, somewhere at age in that eighteen to twenty range, uh, um, I ran into cocaine, and uh, that was uh, there again. Um, uh, it was uh, liquid cocaine. It, it actually, I, I believe, it came from one of the hospitals in Rochester. Okay. Um, I, I, and and so I asked the guy. I said, "How are we going to do that?" And he took out a syringe. He said, "Well, we'll do this." And I thought, "Sure, why? Well, I'm up for anything. Why not?" Right. And um, and, and there again, it was uh, the high was just incredible. And I, I think of all of them, that's the one that. Uh, uh, you know, is probably the most intense. And just for uh, anyone listening, uh, um, I th- if you if you smoke meth, if you shoot meth, if you smoke cocaine, if you shoot up cocaine, it's all the same type of deal. It's a mm-hmm. it's a very intense high and mm-hmm. very sudden. It's um, you know, I, I guess I'll just say it uh, for lack of anything else to compare it to. It would be similar to like a sexual orgasm times a hundred. Hmm. It's a very intense rush. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that gives you some idea. As and you say it doesn't matter if it's uh, intravenous or smoking or, or whatever the means is there. That yeah, smoking and, and injecting is a similar high. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah. it uh, yeah. th- they're similar. To, uh, you know, those drugs can be snorted in yeah. powder form, and yeah. and that you do get high, but it comes on in a slower fashion. The actual putting it directly into your body is uh, all over body rush, yeah. and it what what that does too is you can't climb up to that high again for a long time. So, you know, I'd, I'd generally, I'd buy a gram of cocaine. At that time, it was $100 for a gram of cocaine. And I could probably shoot up probably six, seven times, and a, a gram would get me six six fixes. But once you have that first one, you do it again, and you, you don't get up there. You mm-hmm. don't get up there. And the thing about cocaine that's, uh, I, I, I never did meth that much, but the thing about cocaine is the desire to have it again is so immediate, you know. So you come down and and um, I would binge on cocaine as money would allow me, mm-hmm. which got me into uh, um, legal problems because I didn't have any money. So I had to get money somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the beginning of the spiral uh, towards the end. And, um, uh, you know, 
alcohol and cocaine. I, I had a twin addiction. I mean, I'm addicted. I qualify as an alcoholic very much. Mm-hmm. So there, this can get really deep and, and maybe for another day. But, you know, you talk to, um, if you go to, say, Alcoholics Anonymous, they want you to talk about your alcohol addiction. Right. Uh, and uh, Narcotics Anonymous wants you to talk about. But I think it, it's, it's kind of splitting hairs because I think when we talk about recovery to addiction, whether it's sex or gambling or food or uh, drugs or alcohol, we have to treat it all the same way. And uh, like for me, my first treatment was at Albert Lee, Minnesota, and that my first treatment was in 1986, and I was a junkie. Now, I was a junkie in Minnesota, and there weren't a lot of junkies around yet. Okay. And uh, so I got to use that, like I was with a lot of alcoholics and a lot of pot smokers, and 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 what I what I was thinking in my mind in my first treatment, if you had my problems, if you were a junkie like I was, you'd have problems getting sober too. I kind of you know put myself on a different plane, mm-hmm. where in recovery, what I look at is how am I like you. Mm. You know, I, I, how can I recover? And and I use that, and I think a, a lot of people do. Well, if you you know if you're addicted to heroin, um, that's not like you just drink drink alcohol. Well, it's really really all the same, and the solution is the same for all of it. And that's pretty important. That's pretty important because uh, um, there's a, there's kind of a joke in Alcoholics Anonymous about a guy that dies, and on his his tombstone it says, "Here lies." Bob, he died of terminal uniqueness. So instead of looking mm. towards the solution, we get very unique in what our problem is and why if you had my problems, you'd drink too. If you had my wife, you'd drink too. If you had, and so um, so it's kind of a mental twist. And we're, uh, you know, addiction is basically a, a, a mental illness. It's a, it's a, we have that ability as, as addicts and alcoholics to use our brains against ourselves. You know, it's, it's something I can play with and it's pick up that problem and play with it. Twist everything until it works the way you need it to work. The way your addiction needs it to work, yeah. And those addictions are very, very patient. You Mm -hmm. know, they'll wait for years. I've been sober for 27 years, like I said, and yet uh, we were out east on vacation this year, and I hadn't had a twinge in many years probably, and it was a situation where I was with a lot of people I didn't know, and the beer came out. Okay. And all of a sudden I saw the beer, and, and I'm thinking... Why can I not have a beer with everybody? It was a hot yeah. day. It was beautiful out. Yeah. Why can't I have a beer? Yeah. And yeah. so that stuff waits around. And if you don't have the proper tools, like I still do three or four meetings every week. And if I didn't do that, you know, those opportunities might turn into something different than what they do. You know, you said you were, you're out east. You had a bunch of people you didn't know. It's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of that Harry Potter situation, right? All these people that you don't know, everybody's around, and that kind of that social fear piece kind of creeps in, and and you reach for the thing that's going to make it better. Ah, good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, uh, uh, yeah, the, the solution, and mm-hmm. yeah, very, very mm-hmm. much so. And I want to be a part of things. Yeah, I want to be yeah. accepted. I want to be a part of things. You want to be in that. Mm-hmm. Now. You you've been sober sober for for 
27 years now and and um you've made it you've made this your life mission i mean we're talking about this right now because part of your life mission is helping helping other people by whether it's telling your story or you know partnering with people who are trying to get out of um the situations that they're in right now um could you say more about that I think so. Um, you know, addiction creates situations that seem hopeless and helpless for families, not just the addict. Yeah. A lot, oftentimes, the addict is the one that gets the Medicaid, and the families are the ones that have to live in the disease. I mean, it's it's pretty heavy stuff, and I, I've seen a lot of families, and well, and and the addicts themselves that are in such darkness. You know, I, I go down to the Fillmore County Jail. We started a mentor program at the Fillmore County Jail. So I go down there probably a couple times a month and sit mm. with the guys. And, um, you know, when you, from the outside looking in, I can tell when somebody's addicted. I mean, it's easy for me, you know, to see their problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed help with mine, but I can see theirs. And, and so uh, I think that's part of it. And truly, uh, I think the thing I want the families to know uh, and, and the addicts themselves is there is a solution. There's a solution to this thing. You, you, can, you can have a fulfilling life beyond addiction. And um, until you've lived in a situation where you've been affected closely by an alcoholic or an addict you just have no idea of the darkness and you see you you as a pastor see it in people's eyes when they come mm-hmm. in and say my mm-hmm. kid is i just can't get a handle on this kid mm-hmm. and we've, we're trying everything and unfortunately that the things that we try to help our children or another or, or our loved ones mm-hmm. might be the very things that they don't need you know supplying them with money maybe giving them a car making sure they have everything they need, you know. Sure. And sometimes the bottom means pulling the rug out instead of putting it under. Yeah, yeah and I've heard you, you talk about you can't, I mean, you can be there for the person, you can try to help guiding them along, but you can't, you can't take them that, you, that last mile, that last mile towards healing is, is the hardest. Maybe I'm not, I'm not putting that... Yeah, I think Correctly. you are though. I think I think you're you're, you're it, it's exactly right. And I, you know, you, you know my story. Yeah. I've, I've seen this from a lot of different angles. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, uh, I have people in my family that are addicts, and mm-hmm. and I won't talk about them by sure. name, but I'll tell you that uh, I was unable to to change their way of life. Sure, it was. Uh, um, I've I've lost people. And I also have recovering people in my family that I think that I might have been there for assistance, but I'm sure not the one that made them, that got them to recovery. Right. right. You know, I think they saw me and knew there was an option. Your life uh, serves as an example of, of that, that there, there is possibility, but you, um, but in a, in a certain, at a certain level, you, you, you have they they have to make a decision for themselves. That's um, correct. And, and the other thing that becomes important for the listeners to know is that you know I sit here and it probably from a listening standpoint you probably say, well he's recovering. I mean he's doing it. He's doing. He's doing. He's doing good. He 
he doesn't have a problem any longer. And the truth of the matter is that by myself, before my second treatment, I was in a counselor's office with my mom and dad. I'm 31 years old. They're the only two people that would have anything to do with me. Hmm. And, and that was it for them as well. And I knew that, that that became abundantly clear in that treatment. Uh, but I was sitting there saying, I do not have to go into treatment again. I don't have to. I can do this thing by myself. I can do it. And two hours later, I was pulling a needle out of my arm. So when I made that statement that I could do it, I made it believing what I was saying 100%. And two hours later, I was high. So I guess the the important thing for for people to know is that addiction is so powerful. You know, like I can, I probably could, you know, let's say, for instance, in construction, I could build a house from the ground up without any help at all. I mean, I'm a cap- fairly capable guy, mm-hmm. but I, by myself, I'm unable to not use. I, I have to, it, the, the addicted me had to use drugs and alcohol. Yeah. I did not have an option. And that's, uh, it, you know, I think for normal people, let's just say normal, not addicted, mm-hmm. they don't understand that, that inability to put it down. Um, but it's very important for people to know that addicts and alcoholics indeed have the inability to stop. Yeah. You, you, you talk about it on your own, but you've, so, but that also implies the importance of, of community in others. And you talk about needing to be in these meetings three or four times a week. Hmm. And you talk about the, the importance of these people in your life, um, to talk more about that as as part of your ongoing um, and your ongoing healing and your daily healing and recommitment to yeah, and it is daily. And uh, um, I think that the solution too is uh, obviously uh, I think treatment is really important to just de- detox and get it out of your system and get to a point where uh, this is a daily reprieve. In other words, I do ask for help on a daily basis. I have to turn it over. I have to become willing to listen to other people. I have to be willing to have help. I can't do this thing on my own. And I think that's an important thing. And then the other thing about uh, the meetings for me is, like I said, I had a little twinge out east this year. But the reason I go to meetings is because I also am an alcoholic, even if you take the alcohol away. Yeah. So that kid that was afraid at the Barnes & Noble when he mm-hmm. was little mm-hmm. still exists in me. Mm-hmm. And for me, I do meetings for happiness. I mean, I can't find any sort of happiness unless I talk to another addict. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's a way of life. It's a way of life. Uh, you know, everybody's heard of dry drunk syndrome. And dry drunk syndrome is easy. You take the alcohol away, you still have the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You know, just because the alcohol and drugs are put down doesn't mean we're any better at living than we ever were. So for me, I need constant treatment. And, you know, the meetings for me are my chemotherapy. You know, if, if, if somebody told me, you know, you have, uh, you know, pick your cancer mm-hmm. and you have to go to chemotherapy, I would be on the 10th floor of the Mayo Clinic getting chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. I'm an alcoholic. I know I have to go to meetings. This is what life looks like. This is what life is. It is what life is. And yeah. not only that, these meetings, you know, when I see people relapse after two years, after three years, after five years, after 10 years, um, uh, why did you relapse? 
well, I quit going to meetings. I felt like I didn't have to go to meetings any longer. And, um, and I've seen that enough. We talk about it because I have a couple of friends that have, are over 30 years sober. The chances of us staying sober for 30 years as a chronic alcoholic is about 1%. 1%. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm sure you die before that. You know, there's a lot, a lot of times by the time you get sober 30 years later, you're probably reaching that age where, you know, mm-hmm. there's some of that. But point being, 1% of alcoholics stay sober for 30 years. Mm. So, I mean, that we're, we're swimming against the stream. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh. So I can't help but hear that. That, that talk about needing to talk with other people who are experiencing that and needing to like kind of constantly recommit to that I can't help but hear that and not think about um, like I think that's true of all of us but it, but I think for in the way that I've heard you talk about it um, for addicts and alcoholics there's a certain there's a certain thing that manifests itself but I don't think that that that's different maybe from the way that we experience life like everybody i think has those pieces that like if we're not in community taken care of we don't learn how to deal with mm-hmm. and i think that's i mean does that sound true you absolutely that? you know and and um you know i had a, a friend of mine um that uh, we spent a lot of time in sobriety together and one of his famous statements is we're not the only people to get this meaning that you don't have to be alcoholic to, to understand the spiritual nature of the solution of life. And I think that therein lies uh, probably the next topic of conversation. But yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think we're, we have the same remedy as everybody else. Ours is probably a touch more urgent, you know, or, or ongoing. I don't know what the, the answer would be, but ve- very good point. Very good point. But, and and you, you, being church folks, you know exactly what I mean. I mean, without this place, where would you be? I mean, you'd be at another church. But, but without church, where would your life be? Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, that's, it's just another spiritual group uh, is, is my fellow addicts. So what is... Um, there's there's a, a spiritual component that, from, from what I understand in, in AA and those types of groups... Um, is less specifically named within the group, and people kind of understand that maybe differently in terms of how they would personally approach it, and I may be totally wrong on that. Um, but how does that parallel, inform, walk alongside your faith journey in terms of being part of a church? Yeah, that, I think that's that's good stuff to talk about. Um, and I gotta be a little careful because I, I gotta preface this, I can't speak for AA, you know, that's the, yeah. The organization mm-hmm. itself is, is kind of set up so we don't do that. But here's how I feel about it is um, the message I hear on Sunday mornings when I'm right with the world, when I'm, when I'm working a strong program, is the same message I hear at the AA club. It's, it's the exact same message. Uh, AA did a, they did a very good, when they wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there was some very spiritual intervention there. And what it does, if the world could work the same way AA does, even churches as a matter of fact, it would be a better place to be. Um, it basically is an inside-out program. It's, a, you know, um, I don't take anybody else's inventory. I mean, things are how they relate to me personally. It's really kind of neat. And, and it's, uh, it's almost perfect the way it works. Mm. 
But but the, the, the question that you're asking, and it's very important, is that the spiritual way of living, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're an addict or an alcoholic. I think we all need it. I think I, th- I think that's ac- actually the you know, you know I look at I'm sure there's there's plenty of folks out there that are agnostic and and atheists that uh, maybe live a fairly satisfying life, but I can't imagine uh, and not having uh, a God in my life. Uh, you know, as uh, you know, it, it seems almost ignorance in a way. Uh, you know, to me. Um, but certainly, uh, I could not stop using without uh, uh, a belief in God. There's no way. Very good. That's, that's all I got. You stole my next question. I'll have you know. You stole both of them. <laughs> well, you know, and if you want me to, to, to just go on, uh, you know, um, when I, when I first realized that I wanted help, it was my, my bottom. And, you know, I, that probably is a story for another day as well. Uh, there was a cocaine hotline. And I called this cocaine hotline, and it was very ambiguous. You know, I thought, I thought the, the, they'd be somebody knocking on my door in five minutes. Uh, but it was almost like, well, uh, why don't you try this and see if that works and uh, see if you can get a hold of your pastor. I can't remember exactly what mm-hmm. they said. Mm-hmm. The point being, it wasn't easy for me to find the help I needed. I had to keep asking questions. I think it's important for families, addicts, and their families to know, keep asking questions. Eventually, you're going to find someone. And... Um, there's a saying in AA that's it's actually a, a, a kind of a statement uh, when anyone anywhere is in trouble and needs AA, we want the hand of AA to always be there. We, in other, and that's why I do this stuff is because I want people to know, you know, there's the anonymous part of it is good so long as it goes, but we got to make ourselves available because if, I mean this serious, very sincerely, if I can quit using, anyone can. Because I was—I'm very chronic. I'm a very chronic alcoholic. My my drinking day usually started right around five or six in the morning. That was every day, as long as I could get out of bed and make my way to the refrigerator. All my problems were gone, except for they weren't. So, uh, I guess I'll—you uh, know—if if we're getting near the end, if yeah. anybody needs help, there is help out there, and uh, so many people willing to help. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Steve, yeah. for, for, for joining us and uh, really appreciate your story and just being generous with, uh, with sharing your time with us. My pleasure. So, yeah, mm-hmm. Thanks. Yep. You know, I heard Steve continually mention the importance of people and community in his recovery. He talked about his parents, 12-step groups, and, and other relationships that he has. And Steve's also made it his life's work to help others make that move toward healing, trying to accompany others on their journey. You know, Chris, the Bible has many different creation stories and accounts written by many different writers in different places, different times. But none of them tells how it all happened from a scientific perspective. And honestly, I think we, we need to let that part go. But all of them talk about who does the creating from an artful and poetic point of view. Now, in one of those stories, God creates the earth, the skies, the seas, the universe, and ultimately creates a human being, and then says, it's not good for the human one to be alone. 
God looks at what was made and says, no, this, it's, it's not good. People need other people. Of course, God creates other, another human and suddenly community is born. And these people journey through life together, create together, make a life together, get in trouble together. They rely on one another. They model the importance of relationship and community, and ultimately, they model the importance of grace and forgiveness. It is not good for us to be alone. In recovery, as in life, we need people to support us, sponsor us, and pick us up when we're down. Those in recovery in the recovery movement have so much to teach us about this idea. I was talking offline with Steve a couple days ago, and he said, and, and this is a direct quote, you can't keep what you have until you give it away. You can't keep what you have until you give it away. Look, healing is hard, if not impossible to do alone. We heard Steve say that, we, we heard Jen say that. It's not good to be alone. But together, together we have a chance. If you're listening to this episode today and uh, you or someone that you know is dealing with, with a, an addiction problem, make sure that you do check out your local resources or talk to, talk to your doctor and find out a way to get some help. You do not have to do this on your own. So we've been growing this community at Sandbox Cooperative for the past, I don't know, five, six months now. And growing listenership, growing community, and what we want to do is have a conversation together. We see ourselves as agents of, of curiosity in this chaos of evolving life and faith. And we are curious to know what you want to talk about. So engage with us. Uh, check us out on Twitter, Facebook, or our website. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we look forward to that conversation continuing as we go, as we go on. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. Thanks for listening. Bye. See you. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. <laughs> <laughs>